Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This week on The Booze Hustle, I talked to Rob Campbell, founder and winemaker of Maye Wines. While Maye Wines might be a name you haven't heard before, Rob has been making wine since 1992, starting out with his in-laws at Story Winery in California. Working in the wine business, I sometimes experience a disconnection from the very things I work with day in and out. But every time I talk to a winemaker, there's this inherent passion, respect for the process that they just exude in such a way that I it immediately reminds me of what I fell in love with in the first place about wine. And Rob was absolutely no exception. In fact, his story, or it's even fair to say his native ancestor stories, are so unique and fascinating that I know you will all enjoy hearing about it as well. Rob is of Coast Miwok in Southern Pomo Heritage, and we talk a little bit about the legacy of indigenous people's influence in winemaking and how even his wine project today is breathing life back into a once forgotten tribal language. He was kind enough to send me a few bottles of his wines, all adorned with photos of birds and named after their Coast Miwok names. And while I had some challenges pronouncing them the first time, I had no problems enjoying them, especially his Chardonnay, sourced from the famed San Giacomo Vineyards. Rob is a really interesting guy. I hope you enjoy the episode. I met you through Julie, who is your uh, your PR person? Yeah. Kind of PR friend. Let's put it that way. I'm not big enough to have a person. <laughs> well, she seems like she's that way with a lot of people out there. Yeah. She's yeah, like, yeah. I have a client for you. He's also my husband. <laughs> right. <laughs> with Stu. <laughs> I was yeah. like, oh, that's cool. That's awesome. Um, well, it's nice to meet you. Um, will you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, uh, what your name is, and um, the name of your winery or your wine sure. project? <laughs> my name is Rob Campbell. I am the owner and winemaker of Maye Wines. I'm also the head winemaker at Story Winery in Amador County. I have been producing wine. This year will be my 32nd harvest, but Maye has only been around for about three years. And this pro- Maye started as a project with Story Winery to create an ultra premium brand for Story Winery. But in 2019, we decided to sell the winery. It was kind of a family decision because mm-hmm. I wasn't the sole owner. And uh, before we sold it, I split off the Maye stuff and kept that back. And that's kind of formed the beginning of Maye Wines, which I actually started producing in 2014. And I'll talk more about that in a minute and why it took so long for it to come out. Uh, but Maye stand- is the Coast Miwok word for birds. Mm-hmm. And if you've seen any of my labels, you'll understand why it's called that, because each label features a bird. 
and the wine is named after that bird, what we call that bird in Coast Miwok. So um, it's kind of an homage to my Native American heritage. It's also each of the varietals come from an appellation in Sonoma County that my family actually descends from. Mm-hmm. So the Pinot and Chard that I produce. But right now I'm based up in the Sierra Foothills, which explains the Rhone varietals and the old vine Zinfandel um, that are, form the other two wines of my collection. Very cool. I'm interested in the the connection between um, story and um, Maye. I'm saying it correctly, right? Maye? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So because I, I know there's new ownership there. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent some time on their website and directionally they look like two very different things. I'm wondering, oh, yeah. did, were they more integrated previously and now they're, they look very different from each other or how did that come about? So um, my wife's parents own Story Winery. Um, they bought it in 1992 and that's where I learned how to make wine shoulder to shoulder with my father-in-law because as my in-laws like to say, they bought a winery and they thought they knew a lot about wine. But the only thing they really knew how to do was drink it. So we, um, we figured it all out together, how to make wine. And then in 2011, 2012, my father-in-law's health started to fail. So I came back full-time at Story Winery to take it over, get it ready for sale, and spent eight years really retooling the whole facility and, and uh, getting us back to being you know, one of the top producers in Amador County. During that time, I was trying to figure out a different pricing tier, a different wine tier, because all of our stuff was priced almost in the same plane. Mm-hmm. So I created the, I created this Zinfandel that was a barrel select program and, and was aged way longer than everything else. It was all barrel selected down, spent three years in glass before I was going to release it. But right before I released it, we sold the winery. So um, the Zinfandel is very similar to the story uh, stories infidels that are even still produced today. And and I'm still producing it all anyway, so it's kind of weird to talk about one versus the other. They're all my children. <laughs> um, so, uh, but then I went in a different direction and with the the Chardonnay and the Pinot is definitely more Sonoma County, definitely on a different price tier, whereas more of the, the story stuff is in a, in a medium pricing tier. Mm-hmm. And now with story, I'm actually doing Georgian wines. So I actually make amber wines and clay pots now. Um, so if you I want to talk that. about real, if you want to talk about real differences, <laughs> I'm doing some crazy stuff. Uh, so you know, between the two facilities, I actually produce between. I work with 17 different varietals and do something like 23 to 30 different wines a year. Wow, that's that's like kind of blowing my mind a little bit. You have. Um a winemaker with Native American background making Georgian wines. <laughs> yep. In fact, yesterday I was, we just emptied out one of our quevries, uh, mm-hmm. our Chardonnay quevries, where we actually make amber wine. So not only are we making Georgian style wines, we're actually making amber wine in California. <laughs> That's so wild. That's so wild. Um, I, I will thank you first for sending me um, your wines. They're beautiful. I love the labels. I think they're great. Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about more of, um, I, I read a little bit about your connection to your mother and how mm-hmm. she had a big influence in, um, I guess, directionally in this project with your wines, with May wines and mm-hmm. um, the, the language. Would you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I descend from a tribe called the Coast Miwok, which is all of Marin County in southern Sonoma County. I also have Pomo. Um, I just said from Pomo tribes, too. So I actually have both. Southern Pomo is southern Sonoma County. 
So that tribe today is called the Federated Indians of Great Rancheria, and my mother was actually a tribal council person for the uh, for the government. And one of her responsibilities was cultural restoration and preservation. And when we were finally re-recognized by the federal government in 2000, she uh, decided to embark on a language restoration project because mm-hmm. all of our native speakers had died. But we had tons of recordings of our native speakers, and we partnered with some linguists uh, from Berkeley and a few other people. We, we work with outside consultants and are the recordings of the last speakers of our language to start this language restoration. And now there's 20 to 50 tribal members that can actually have full conversations in Coast That's so cool. That's so, so cool. Yeah, it's, so that, that was like, you know, she, that was all going on right as I was thinking about what I was doing with the branding and what have you. And the first wine I did was the Plotchok Zinfandel. And I really wanted a woodpecker putting an acorn in a hole because at the tasting room at Story, we have tons of woodpeckers pecking acorns into the tasting room. <laughs> uh, we, our tasting room is 160 years old. It's made of incense cedar. So the woodpeckers love to just peck oh, on it. Yeah. It's got thousands of acorn holes on it. Yeah, I'm sure. So I wanted to, you know, an acorn put in a, in a, a woodpecker put an acorn in. And so the idea came up, well, let's use the Coast Miwok words for that. And I went to my mom and I said, so what's the Coast Miwok word for uh, the redheaded acorn woodpecker? And she said, plot chop. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, boy, that's every marketing expert in the world's going to tell me not to call a wine plot chop. But we decided to go with it. Um, it's kind of just neat and interesting. And other people use strange names for their wines. So sure. I was like, okay. Yeah, for sure. But by calling the brand Maye and by using the Coast Miwok word for each of the wines that we have, I feel like everybody's speaking Coast Miwok now. So if anybody's talking to me about my wine or they want, hey, I want the Hummingbird or I want the Kalupi or I want the Pinot, I want the Omai, it's my way of preserving our language just a tiny, tiny little bit. Mm, That's awesome. Wow, that's really great. I think a lot of people don't realize the, the history of Native populations and winemaking even in California. Um, mm-hmm. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Because that I don't think that's something, li- like the language, there's things that get lost over time. What's your knowledge on that? Well, it's funny you ask. Uh, I have kind of a side research project I'm doing about the early days of winemaking in California. And prob- probably everybody's imagination right now, they're thinking of Napa or Sonoma. And I'm like, no, we're going down to San Juan Capistrano in Orange County and Mission San Gabriel in Los Angeles. And that's actually where wine country started in California back in the 1770s and 1780s. So right as our nation was being founded, before we even had our constitution, there were Native Americans making wine in Southern California. And a lot of people, you hear these stories about the Padres planted vines and the Padres, the Padres didn't do anything. The Padres knew how to write stuff down. That's about it. <laughs> they had no agricultural expertise at all. They were theologians. Sure. sure. So uh, the first missions, what they did is they brought the people who were making wine in Mexico, the, the experts, um, and they would come up to California, train some local natives on how to make the wine. And once they had winemaking established at one of the missions, they would take a few of those experts, go on to the next mission and the next mission and so forth and so forth. 
So in California, we have 21 missions and 17 of them actually produced wine. Now, as far as my personal connection to that is I descend from Mission Indians that occupied four different missions, three of which produced wine. So Mission San Rafael, Mission San Jose, and Mission Sonoma. So I like to say that I'm probably not the first winemaker in my family. It just mm-hmm. skipped a couple hundred years. And I, I did have some cousins who actually owned a winery in Sonoma called Pomo Ridge in the 80s and 90s. But uh, as far as my direct connection, it's, it's, been a, it's been a little bit of a time since we've been making wine. Yeah, I was wondering, I was actually trying to figure out today, um, are there any other native winemakers that you're aware of um, in your community? Anyone that I should check out? There's a few of them in Southern California. I'm sorry, I don't have their names at the top of my head. But You're as like, far no, as. No, don't give business to my competitors. <laughs> <laughs> buy buy as... my wines only. <laughs> there you go. But as far as, you know, in our tribe or, or close by, well, other than my sons who help me make wine, uh, who've grown up in the wine industry, uh, there's nobody up in Northern California that I know. But there, there's a few around, especially in. Um, in central and southern California, as well as New Mexico too, which is it got an even sure. older wine making history. Theirs goes back to the 1600s. If you want to get it's way wild. back, yeah, that's the way back. Wow, I was doing a little research on you, and I, I noticed that you had a little bit of a gap, right? Like learning about wine and then kind of coming back full force into winemaking, mm-hmm. and you had all of these kind of careers in between. Um, mm-hmm. What what was that about? Was that just like a, I don't want to get into wine, I want to pursue other things, or is it like I'm I'm not making money in wine? <laughs> what was the what was the the story there? So the the wine business is was started as a family business. You know, it was my she wasn't even my wife then. I just started dating my wife when her parents bought the winery. Mm. But for the first five to eight years, we spent a lot of time up there, especially on the weekends and during crush and bottling. But we both had our own careers. So I actually used to be, uh, still am, an audio engineer. I still mix live shows. Uh, but I had a career working for a company called Avid Technologies, producing a product called Pro Tools. And uh, I did that. I, I was actively involved with the company for 10 years and then was a consultant for almost another 10 years. So I was with the company for about 20 years. So I was doing that. And that's my second career. Winemaking is my third career. My first career, I was actually a professional musician. So that's what I actually studied in college. Everybody thinks I'm a chemist or enologist or viticulturist. I'm like, no, I play saxophone. Um, <laughs> oh, that's cool. So it's been a, it's been a very interesting journey. Uh, but through all that, besides managing hundreds of millions of dollars of products, I've had a couple different training uh, companies where I flew around the world training people how to use Pro Tools. So uh, you want that to was me? really... I could use some lessons. I'm producing this podcast on my own now. Shout out to my old producer, Kevin. I miss you. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Uh, But yeah, I could use a lesson. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. (laughs) That's It's all good. Uh, It it just afforded me the opportunity to run a few companies and really get into financials. But where I'm really at home is in the cellar. That's that's where my happy place. Um, I, I love the it's hard work. It's physical work, especially climbing into a quivery and cleaning it out, um, which was yesterday. Oh my God. Uh, but uh, it, it's just, you know, things could be going wrong in life or things are not going the way you want to, but just grab a wine thief, go in the barrel room and all is right with the world in 20 minutes. Yeah. So uh, that's my happy place. Yeah. I've counted several jobs that you're currently doing right now. Like, how do you find the time for that? 
Uh, it's challenging. Just ask my wife. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, but uh, I will tell you what's what's interesting with that background is I still do a lot of live sound mixing, so I li- mix live concerts. Like for and like musicians, like big acts or just concerts. Private. It's, it's they're private events. They could range from just a couple hundred to a couple thousand people. Uh, okay. But cool. the the acts are, you name it, uh, it's all over the place. That's neat. So when you're mixing. Whether you're mixing it live or you're mixing for an album or mixing for a, a film or TV, it's all about putting everything in its right place. It's all f- little frequencies and EQs and compressions to make this this perfect soundscape, um, this beautiful soundscape. And to me, in my mind, it's exactly how you make wine. I mean, you start with as good of grapes as you can, like you start as good musicians as you can. You get it recorded, you get it crushed properly. You, the chemistry is good. The recording, the microphones are good, the EQs are good, the compressors are good. And then you, at the final touches, you're just tweaking little tiny things to create this sonic landscape or this taste landscape. And I think that's one of the things that's unique, about, not unique about my wines, but what I strive for is that when you taste the wine and you're experiencing the wine, it's just the full palate. It covers the whole, it just explodes in your mouth and covers the front of the tongue, back of the tongue, the finish, everything is this everything in its right place. So when I'm making wine or I'm mixing a film or I'm mixing a live show, to me, in my weird brain, it's all the same. Um, I have to warn you, you're not going to be able to listen to this podcast because you're going to be like, this audio mixing is terrible. <laughs> no, 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 don't say that. <laughs> I can make a mean cocktail, but man, this audio editing. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, I'm just kidding. I'm getting better. It's it, it's time consuming. No, but that's really great. See, and you I, just and you I, just gotta you gotta think about your podcast as like your cocktails. A hundred percent. And I am a perfectionist. That's part of the problem. Um, uh, no, but I really like that. And I and I and I think there's so much truth to that. Is that um, you obviously have that type of brain uh, for putting things in the right place and and blending them together. And that's very much uh, that's very much winemaking. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Is there a wine, you know, style that you're most... Um, not trying to emulate, but most inspired by, was there like a bottle of wine that you had once that you were like, this, this is what I want to do. It's magic. Boy, that, you know, I've been asked this question a lot recently and, you know, like what winemakers do you want to emulate? What wines have you had that are just, you know, this or that? And it's hard to put my finger on any one thing, but I will say this. Uh, there's wines I've come across, and I'll mention one is Bacchus from Joseph Phelps because it leaps to the top of my head, is when I taste that, that is a really great representation of Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley. And I've tasted and bought a lot more expensive ones and a lot cheaper ones, but that is just, to me is like, boom, that is the expression of Napa Valley right there. Whether you like that or not, but to me, that's like, that's a Napa cab, which is impossible to drink. Other cabs from Napa don't, don't quite meet that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it gets to be a very expensive uh, proposition for a lot of people. I, now that you can have great Cabernets from Napa Valley, I don't want to disparage anybody because I think there's really great wine being made out of there, but it's, it's become this productized money thing that oh, just yeah. gets so out of hand so quickly. So expensive. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so I hate to mention Bacchus, but as far as like talking about a Napa cab, like why am I talking about a Napa cab? So uh, the next wine that always reminds me of just a, a seminal time in my wine uh, life was when I got to go to Mouton Rothschild and do a private tasting with just me and my wife and... Uh, Oh, a winery person there. And we got to spend three hours by ourselves, Chateau uh, Mouton, and uh, and tasting the 95 vintage oh, straight yeah. out of the barrel. That's how you do it. <laughs> so, But what was amazing is like it, it didn't taste great because it's a brand new wine that's been aged in oak for three years. This is like 1998. So it's like super bitter, lots of tannins, whatever. But it, but then you do, you go taste something that's fully mature, that's 25 or 35 years, and then you see, ah, that's how they evolve. Mm-hmm. To see it at its very, very, very beginning, its very ugly beginning, and then to see how that translates after 25 or 30 or 50 years. I mean, it, it always reminds me of that saying in the wine industry, the grandfather plants the vines that his grandson will harvest, and it's so true. Well, that's you know, a very that's, traditional mindset that you have because if you talk to a lot of a lot of California winemakers these days, they're drink they're making wines that are meant to be drank like immediately. And I, one of the things I was going to actually talk to you about was I noticed there's uh, a, a kind of a common thread 
in the winemaking that I've I've read about about extended aging and how long you're keeping it not only in the barrel but in the bottle and you're releasing it later. I wonder like how much of your experience, you know, tasting that wine out of the barrel like really informed that for you and 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 kind of made that your I don't know, your mission, I guess. And you use a lot of neutral oak as well. I think mm-hmm. I, I mean, speaking to the other side of it, you're you got winemakers who are um, have grapes that are relatively young. They're making wines of them and then they're throwing them in newer oak so they can kind of get to that place faster. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd love I'd love if you just kind of um, discuss a little bit about your approach to winemaking. You know, so, uh, one of the things that's common thread between all the wines I make uh, for May, and this is definitely just a May thing, is that they're very, very smooth. Whether it's the Chardonnay, whether it's the, the Zin that's been aged for two years in oak and aged in glass for three years before it's even released. That's one of my goals with Maye is when you open a bottle and you, you don't need to wait around. It's, it's good, but I've done all the aging for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, smoothness is part of it. So how do you achieve smoothness in the wine? Well, extended aging, barrel aging in red wines is definitely how you do it. It's a larger risk and it's a huge capital in, in investment. Sure. Um, the, the reason people are releasing wine sooner, especially with newer grapes, is they have to recoup that ROI. Um, you can't be capitalizing a year's worth of production every year for three or four or five, six years before you even see $1 back, unless you're a multi-multi-billionaire and are using a winery as a write-off, which I'm sure there's a lot of them who do that. Uh, <laughs> but the, the way you make money in the wine industry is you turn. You, you, you do inventory turns as fast as you can. And that's probably the antithesis to what I'm doing. Uh, this is my private project, my private label uh, that I sell to, on allocation. And it's really meant to be when you open that bottle, that bottle is meant to drink now, but has enough life and enough tannins in it that it will last, especially on the red wine. So it'll last 10, 15 years without a, without a problem. Yeah, I got that sense when I uh, I drank the the red blend. And forgive me, I'm gonna mangle the pronunciation. Um, I'll say it for you, shukutak. Shukutak. Yeah, or shokotak. Shokotak. That's what I was saying. I was doing shokotak because the double yep. ch situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I was getting a lot of very reminiscent Rhone, like um, funky, like you know, but really like lovely integrated tannins and. Um, yeah, I very much enjoyed that. And I and I, I got the sense that I was like, I'm kind of this is like uh, infanticide right now. Like I, I should not be drinking this. I feel like I could have just left this downstairs and forgot about it for a few years and um, benefited a little bit more from that. Um, but it, it was great. It was a beautiful wine. And, and that's my that's my Eau de Chateauneuf de Pops. So but getting back to your other question about the great wines, Chateauneuf de Pops, that's one of those wines that you could go to a restaurant and order almost any Chateauneuf de Pop off of the menu, and they'll all be good. It's it's rare you come across a bad one. It's just su- it's just such a great combination, and and how people do blendings of all those different seventeen different varietals. That's why I did Chacoutac. Is that's my ode to that's the California ode to Chateauneuf de Pops, mm-hmm. and even how it's made is very French. It's not California at all. Um, how the Grenaches just a completely different process than the Petite Syrah versus the Syrah versus the Mouvedre versus the Quinoise. And, and each of the wines on their own, just, I mean, they, they can be okay, but they're purposely built for that blend. Yeah, I got Sorry, that sense. What's the, 
Oh, it's okay. What's the what's the alcohol on that? Because I I also felt like it was definitely more uh, uh, European style that way too. Like a lot of the California Rhone style blends are very high in alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. And and I, I I and if if this was higher, I didn't get it. Um, no, it's all it's all. It's so in, it's in the low 14s. Okay. Um, now, you got to understand, I do high alcohol wines. My Zinfandel sometimes oh, will yeah. crank up to 16, um, <laughs> or not quite 16, 15.99, if any, I, if any TTV people are listening. Um, so, uh, yeah, so to get that, that's exactly why I did it, because I'd come across GSMs or GSPs in California, especially from Paso Robles, and they'd be 16.4, 16.5, 16.8. And I just, I mean, they're great. I love them. They're these high extracted, just giant fruit bombs, but there's so much alcohol in it. So I really wanted to have a restrained style, really keep it um, not so much leaner in the taste, but leaner in the alcohol profile, but mm-hmm. have that full flavor impact. Yeah. Um, of all the varietals that you work with, is Zinfandel your favorite? Is Zinfandel my favorite? Boy, that's like asking which of my children are my favorite. I know, um, I know. That's a dumb question. I just I was reading about the the vines that you're using for Zen, and like I always think it's such a cool premise when you're working with like a hundred to hundred twenty year old vines, and because that's something that's so rare in America in general. You know, like yeah. especially with like the turn and burn um, of winemaking, especially with like you know um, Zinfandel not being cab, right? So like, yeah. You know, I so I, I I always wonder like I feel like that would be my favorite. <laughs> you know, it's it's my old friend, it's my oldest and dearest friend. I I will say that it's the it's the grape I have the most experience with. But the vineyard I pass by, you know, that I park next to every day and I see every day and I walk by every day is our mission vineyard. Uh, so we have a, a it's almost a hundred and thirty years old. It's planted in eighteen ninety four. Uh, it still produces somewhere between one and two tons a year. Hmm. It's dry farmed, head pruned. They're these gorgeous vines. So I, I love the mission, especially with my family's history. But I have to tell you, the last couple of years, the, my favorite varietal I've been working with is Saparavi, which is a Georgian varietal. Hmm. Um, we, have a, we have a fruit source, which shall remain nameless, mm-hmm. um, that we get a little bit of Saparavi from every year. And it's just it's just a crazy wine to work with because if you think Petite Syrah is dark, yeah, Saperavi is five times darker. And in Georgia, they call it black wine because it will leave your taste, it will leave your teeth black after you drink it. Oh my god! It's just super, super, super dark. So um, with that Saperavi, we we do I, I make a small limited bottling for the owner so he can enjoy with his Georgian friends. But uh, the Saparavi is my go-to for if I need to add a little color to something. If I need to just add a little color pop to the rosé or a little color pop to one of the other things, man, it's like magic. <laughs> is it is it um, a lot of tannins or is it um, just dark color? It's it's definitely got tannins, but it's not it's not as bitey as Petite Syrah. Hmm. It's got a little bit of spiciness like Zinfandel, but it's not definitely not as fruity as Zinfandel. It's got the structure of a cab. So it's got that really firm tannin uh, fruit st- uh, structure to it. So it's its own little beast, uh, but it's not super fragrant. It's not super like 
like Tokay or blast, Black Muscat or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always done in a very dry style. It's absolutely like zero residual sugar in it. Uh, but it is, yeah, it is, it's crazy. I wonder how many, uh, like how much of that is actually planted out there? Uh, that I know of is less than 20 acres wow. in the United States because it's still not certified for planting. So you have to find these renegade vineyards that have them. Yeah, which I feel like there's more of them popping up around you know here and there and everywhere you see these like really funky unique weird weirdo varietal wines and and blends that are um you know it's kind of like the the middle finger to the establishment wines which which i love and georgian wines they have 285 varietals that are just unique to georgia so (laughs) that's crazy when when i see the stuff come in from georgia i'm I'm trying to pronounce these things what the (laughs) heck are you guys importing and so and then they're like, "What? Do, what is it? What's the name of your wine, Rob?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, give us a hard time about our Georgian bridles. I, when I was studying for my um, one of my wine certifications, I was trying to explain to somebody, um, like especially in Europe, like you know Georgia, Greece, like Greece, mm-hmm. like the amount of unique varietals just in Greece mm-hmm. is staggering. And I was trying mm-hmm. to explain, I'm like, I only have so much room left in my brain that I am for <laughs> sure losing something important by memorizing just the varietals indigenous to Santorini. For sure. Like, I've lost yeah. something something in there for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's crazy. So currently, you're, you're very small production, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so what, well, what's the small plan? Well, is, you know, 800 to 1,000 a year. Yeah. Cases. Yeah, because so. I was saying like 150 to 200 cases per varietal-ish, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I mean, that's not like super small, but it's it's small. It's like you do um, uh, like wine club or direct-to-consumer or... It's it's all DTC and it's all allocation. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a little challenging that way because I don't have a tasting room. I don't have um, like a regular vehicle for people to taste my wine and, and sell it because of my licensing type. But uh, it's fine. This is I make this wine for my friends and my family. And if other people want to buy it, that's great. I'm finding I have a lot more friends now. <laughs> mm. uh, but it's that's that's my whole philosophy with it. Like I make this for my friends and my family. The blend. Uh, I have to tell you a little story about that. So I knew I wanted to do a blend, and I knew I wanted to do a Chateauneuf de Pop style. So me and my wife did lots of research meaning drink lots of bottles and lots of producers. Poor you. Um, I got this beautiful book as a gift from a friend of mine that highlights each of the Chateauneuf de Pop uh, producers with these beautiful photographs, but talks about each of the wine and their production styles. And that's what got me really interested is like how the Grenache is made, what yeast is used for that, how it's only in stainless until it gets to the blend. is very reminiscent of how they do Grenache in cement in uh or a fondra in uh in south of france and so each of the wines are their own separate beasts like they none of them use the same yeast i don't think none of them use the same barrel program and then so they're all kind of their individual five things and then they get put together and go back into a barrel to kind of get to know each other for about six months mm-hmm. and then we bottle it what kind of barrels are you using i use a combination of french and american I used I go through about eight different coopers. Um, I've whittled it down to these eight. No, actually, it's ten now. I think ten coopers, but there, there'll be stuff like we do a Creekside Zinfandel at Story, 
that I only use Canton wood on. My Pinot only uses Francois Ferrer, but then my Zinfandel uses six different Coopers. So each, each I've had the luxury of having great consultants who I've known for decades and taking from their expertise which oak and which toast for which wine goes mm-hmm. well. And it has allowed me to just take all these beautiful baking spices and put them together. So, you know, I don't use... I, French, of course, I use a lot more than I use American, mm-hmm. but I do use American. Yep. I so wonder, as you, were, as you were in the um, process of, you know, learning all of this, did, did you have any mentors or anyone that really influenced your, um, your winemaking? Yeah, for sure. Michael Carr at Roche Winery, he's been a huge influence on me uh, over the past, geez, been 20 years now. And then he had an assistant winemaker, Peter Cruz, who was kind of my go-to guy when I came back to the winery. He was my father-in-law's assistant winemaker, and he was Michael's assistant winemaker. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with Michael or heard about him or whatever, but uh, he does an amazing job at Roche. Uh, He makes some of the best Chardonnays in California, and he's probably the best winemaker nobody knows because he likes it that way. Uh, But he learned from Jack McCrosty. So... I always say that, you know, my, my, everything Michael knows about Chard, he learned from Jack. And everything I know about Chard, I learned from Michael. And so it's, it's a nice lineage. And sure. every year, San Giacomo Family Vineyards has this tasting of all, they invite all the winemakers who source their fruit. So they have 1,500 acres in Carneros mm-hmm. in Sonoma County. And we all get to taste each other's Chardonnays. And me, Michael, and Jack all sit kind of usually at the same table and it's hilarious because when we come across a wine and we taste it, we're like, oh, this one's pretty good. It's 90% of the time, it's one of the three of ours. Hmm. They're, they're, they're just so similar in their styles. But we don't talk about, you know, like, did you use that yeast? No, I use this yeast. Oh, did you use this? No, I use this oak. But the wines always come out very similar to each other. So. Interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. I was excited to try it. I, I, I've had other wines from San Giacomo Vineyards, um, and, and the fruits are always really beautiful and expressive. So, um, yeah, now you've talked me into it. I will open that tonight. <laughs> See, without clouding your judgment, the block that that comes from is shared with Rombauer and Frank family. Interesting. So, but how it's handled and made are very different. I'm guessing. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a butter bomb gal. So, are you using malolactic? Uh, it's not that. Do you use mallow um, in the process? Yes, one hundred percent. Yeah. But I don't. Um, uh, how should I say? I don't use nearly as much new oak as those guys do. Yeah. Okay. Good to know. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I'm excited to try it. Um, what else? What did what else did I miss? Um, this is not a long podcast, uh, as you no, may have gathered. I try to keep people uh, interested in their drives to work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the only other thing I'd say is, you know, in Amador County, I'm California Shenandoah Valley. That's always kind of interesting. People always like, Cal- why do you have to say California Shenandoah Valley? Mm. And we have to remind them, well, there's another Shenandoah Valley yeah. in Virginia. Correct. That's actually a wine producing region. It's been a wine producing region for a long time. So when we went to go get our AVA, I think it was back in the 80s, like 84 or something like that, because we do have a very unique uh, soil structure in that area. They call it Sierra soil. It's decomposed granite. 
but it's very it's very different than the the areas around it. Even when you get up into El Dorado County, which is just a fifteen minute drive, it's just mm-hmm. completely different soil. So they they submitted the the application for an ABA and. They said, well, we already have a Shenandoah Valley, so you're going to have to be California Shenandoah Valley. So imagine we have to put that on the label, California Shenandoah Valley. How many letters is that? I think we win the award for the longest AVA name. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long one. It's a mouthful. But I very much look forward to uh, talking to people about your your wines. Um, Great. I think what you're doing is very valuable. I really love... um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm a bit of a softy and 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 sentimentality. So like, the connection with you know your culture and really kind of bringing it to life um, mm-hmm. and what you do is 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 really incredible. And and I love that you 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 know your mom spent all this time resurrecting the language, and now you're getting all all us dopey Americans to use it. It's great. There you go. <laughs> and the other reason I don't know if I told you this. The other reason there's a quail on Shakutok is that was my mom's favorite bird. Aw, are so you a birder? Was, I, I no, I'm not a huge birder. I mean, I love looking at birds. Where where I work, I get to see falcons diving and killing pigeons, and mm-hmm. hawks circling above all day long, and um, ospreys, and it, we have tons of birds uh, where I live. It's just that I wanted to take that natural beauty, and. I feel because my wines, I don't do a lot of manipulation to my wines. What you're tasting is really the fruit sources. So it's like stay out of the way. Just let the the natural beauty of the wine comes through. And I just felt like birds just kind of in their natural beauty just reflect that. Yeah. I live in the woods. I live in the middle of two state parks kind of. Mm. Um, And so... We're, we've turned into bird people uh, only because when you have small children during uh, the COVID times where everyone was at home, we took up bird watching because what else Ooh. is there to do? Um, but I feel like, Rob, I feel for you because a lot of people, if you do any press, everyone's going to be like, are you a bird guy? <laughs> like, <laughs> everyone's going to assume you're a birder. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. No, it's just, it's, you know, the very important in our culture, the most famous and intricate baskets you'll ever see are pomo feather baskets Mm. so what they do is the pomo baskets are so intricately woven that they actually can hold water um and they're all made out of natural fibers there's there's Mm. nothing else put into them and they have these intricate designs but the most fancy ones is they actually wove in feathers from birds so the whole basket looks like it's covered with feathers oh wow like like almost like a fur and then you really look at it and you're like, well, what kind of feathers are those? Oh, that's the green shiny feathers from a duck mallard. Hmm. And you go, how many ducks were killed in the, in the production <laughs> of that? And so I saw one recently that was covered with red feathers. My mom showed me this picture from a museum in Europe. I said, red feathers? What are those? That's the scalps of red-headed acorn woodpeckers. Those are oh. not very big birds. And so you're talking about maybe a couple dozen, three dozen bird scalps that had to be used to make that basket so wow now they they ate everything so they, they're not killing well, things sure. for, uh, <laughs> or baskets with the little quail tops i have one of them it's about it's only six inches wide but it's little quail plumes there's about 20 oh, cool. of them on the top of them that are woven in we we collect feathers um we have a jar in our um in our living room this giant mason oh, jar 
And yeah. we've got, I mean, hawk feathers. We've got falcon feathers. We've got every every possible thing you can imagine. Um, and every time they find them, they bring them in the house. And we add them to the collection. So ah, cool. <laughs> yeah, that'll be it's, a keepsake. It is a keepsake. Well, I feel like I've taken enough of your time. It's been great. I really appreciate you um, uh, doing the podcast and meeting you and sending me these beautiful wines, and I can't wait to drink the rest of them. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 